scripture reading is Hebrews 11, verse 8 through 19. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand in the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. This is God's word. Last week we began a series called Unseen. For five weeks we're looking at the dynamics of faith from Hebrews chapter 11. I think it's a very critical time in the life of our church. I think there's many of you who have dreams and hopes, things that you want to live out. I, I think it's not by accident. Right here in the middle of the summer, we're looking at a very deep level, not only of faith, but those men and women who have been selected uh, from all of God's people that walk by faith. These things are written for our growing pulpit, for our learning, for our instruction. It's come the end of the ages. There's something God wants Calvary Chapel, Delaware County to live out. There's something that you need to live out. And in all of this, we're going to live not by sight, the Bible says. We're going to live by faith. There's a new dynamic for believers. We have now ears to hear and eyes to see what the natural man can't. And so faith really, and we get a definition if you look in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things I cannot see. It's seeing the unseen. We see by the eyes of faith. We see what others cannot see. And today we're looking at the faith of Abraham and Abraham has more verses dedicated to him than any other person in Hebrews 11. Uh, that's not by chance. He's called the father of all that believe, still revered by three monotheistic religions today, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the Quran. There's 188 verses dedicated to Abraham. But I think the greatest commentary on Abraham's life, and what really moves me, comes from the book of James, where James says concerning Abraham, he was the friend of God. And I look at that and I think, is there anything greater in the world than to be called the friend of God? Uh, especially in an age where people think, okay, you know, by faith I can have a Mercedes. By faith I can have the house I always wanted and, and the car I always wanted. Those are all things that follow faith if God would allow. But the object of faith is God himself. And this is a man who, who was rich but dwelt in tents. 
He's a man of the tent and the altar. He's a pilgrim. He's looking for a city whose builder and maker was God that had sure foundations. And he's the father of all who have believed. He's the father of all who have believed because he had it way more difficult than you and me. I talked about this last week. He couldn't listen to a podcast. He couldn't even read a Bible. There was no Bible. He had no one who had lived before him by faith, and yet he ventured out, and it says here in verse 8, by obedience, he obeyed. We kind of want to jump over that. He obeyed. It was by faith that Abraham did all these things, and he became the friend of God. Verse 6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God, because the person that comes to God must first believe that he is, and secondly, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you see God that way? It's a beautiful picture. Do you see God as someone who wants to reward you? Do you see yourself as a friend of God? Sometimes Calvary Chapel becomes a hospital for those who have experienced, you know, toxic faith somewhere else. So maybe you're not there this morning. Maybe, maybe you think God is strict. Maybe you think God isn't benevolent. I want to open the scriptures today. I want you to see the heart of God through this man who was a friend of God, Abraham. Verse 8 says, by faith he obeyed. Now, what did Abraham obey? This is critical. Uh, if you got to Genesis chapter 12, this is Abraham's calling. And notice what verse 1 says. It says, now the Lord said to Abraham. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. This is God's word to Abraham. I have no idea how the word of God came to Abraham. I don't know if he heard an audible voice. I don't know if it came in his spirit. I don't know if he saw God. I don't know any of the particulars. But we have written here what God said. God said, I want you to get out of your country, away from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you, make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham had two promises. One was people. And they would be like the stars in heaven and the sand on the seashore. And the other was a physical land that we know is Israel today. Boundaries and borders in Genesis chapter 15. And Abraham is giving these two staggering promises. And it comes to him and he has to act by faith. And it always comes, right? This is, this is how faith begins. It begins with a call. Now we're all called to be holy. We're all called to be righteous. That's a general command. But I know that God speaks. Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 1, God has spoke to the fathers in the past through the prophets. Today is speaking through his son. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. We serve a God who speaks. And even now, through this series, and when you're living your life, God is speaking to you. He is depositing in your spirit certain things you are to live out that no one else can really discern. It's for you and you alone. Now, collectively as a church, there's some things we need to live out. But it always begins with a call. And someone once said this, and I agree. God is the great interrupter. He really is. And, and think about your life. Just when things are going well, just when you think, okay, now I'm happy. This is the way life should be. The great interrupter appears. And he begins to speak. And there's a call to him. And I've lived with God long enough, and I've read the scriptures long enough to know how it works. There, there, there's a disturbance. There's an unsettledness. Uh, there's a wrestling of spirit. There's even a wrecking of spirit. You know it's God, and, and he won't let you be satisfied with the here and now. There's something unseen. There's something to live out. He's, he's put it before you, and by faith it can only be realized, and there's this
this unbelievable wrestling until you realize that God's preferred picture of the future is better for you than your preferred picture of the future. I'll give you a modern-day example, Gary Halgren. Gary's been with us in our Compassion and Justice Weekends. He leads International Justice Clinics. He was a mid-level lawyer in Washington, D.C., made a handsome income, was a believer, and then one day was exposed to the horrors of bonded slavery and sex trafficking around the world. Now, this is many years ago. This is before Liam Neeson blew up all of France in Taken. That's when everybody else found out about human trafficking, right? Gary, as a lawyer, saw this happening around the world. And by faith, left his firm, started an international justice mission. Today, it's one of the most stellar ministries, one of the most stellar organizations in all Washington, D.C. Uh, church history. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, was a priest. Back in those days, priests were very comfortable. It was a very prestigious position. And he began to be disturbed by people who were being told by the church about indulgences and and how we had lost salvation by grace and through faith. And and he wrestled with God, and he went through the dark night of his soul, and one day puts the 95 Thesis on the church door at Wittenberg, and it starts the Reformation. And we look back and say, yeah, he started the Reformation. He's this influential man. No, he did it with the idea that he would be a heretic. He could be burned at the stake. And yet God put that in his spirit. I look at Nehemiah from the Old Testament, never born in Israel. He was born in captivity, becomes prime minister in Persia. He's second only to Artaxerxes the king. And one day, a, a contingency of people come from Israel, and he says, how's Jerusalem? And they said, you wouldn't believe it. The wall's torn down. There's nothing there. It's just a ruin. And again, here's a man who's never been there, and he begins to weep and pray, because he, know the pro- he knows the promise God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knows the promise of what that nation was to be, a city set on a hill. And he goes through a series of steps where he approaches the king and risks everything by faith. It always begins with this call, and it always begins with God's voice. See, see, it's not the other way around, and this is taught a lot in the church. In the church, it's taught that I scheme up some proposal, and then I get God to buy it. That's not how it works. It always comes by faith, and it always is God's preferred picture of the future. And I'm going to give you a verse you would skate over, and I want you to look at it deeply. It's Genesis 12. God pronounces this blessing, and the very next verse says, so Abraham departed. Abraham departed. Now, I don't know the wrestling that went on. I don't know the time that went on, but I know he departed as the Lord had spoken, and Lot went with him, and get this, he's 75 years old. Next week, we're going to look at Moses' faith. Moses is 40 when he goes to the backside of the desert. He's 80 when he sees the burning bush. So for those of you who are a little older and you think faith is a young man's game, look, if you're not dead, you're not done, okay? I just talked to two ladies in the table in the coffee shop, right, in their 50s, and we talked about things God has on the horizon. God has something for everybody in this room. I don't care how old you are. Abraham was 75 years old. Faith begins when Abraham departs. Now, I'm going to say something if you take out of context or misquote me, won't sound right. A lot of people say, how do I get a stronger faith? How do I build my faith? And you ready for this? Okay, don't take it out of context. You don't get a stronger faith by reading the Bible. 
happens if you read the Bible and never take a step? You just become more knowledgeable. And Paul said knowledge puffs up. You don't get a stronger faith just by praying, just by fasting or doing spiritual disciplines. You get stronger in your faith when you take a step. Abraham departed. That's why the writer of Hebrews says he obeyed. He took a first step. Uh, Let me show you another place where you would overlook this. It's in Luke 17. I alluded to this last week. Uh, Jesus tells the disciples, look, you have to forgive people. And by the way, uh, seven times a day. And the disciples are like, Lord, increase our faith. It's hard to forgive somebody once a day or once a year. Seven times a day? We need more faith. Jesus said, you don't need more faith. You need, all you need is a mustard seed. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and cast in the sea and it would obey you. Now, because Luke was a doctor, Luke records the very next thing that happens. Jesus is going through different towns, and he comes to a place, and there's ten lepers. And they cry from afar to Jesus, have mercy on us. In other words, they want to be healed. They've heard of the healings, blind eyes being opened, deaf ears being opened, the, the, the people being fed. They understand this, and they cry from afar. Now, here's what you need to know about leprosy. In the ancient world, if you had leprosy, in this part of the world specifically, and you were walking down the street, and you saw me coming the other way, a healthy person, you had to go to the other side and yell, unclean. Because not only could you defile me physically with leprosy, but you would defile me spiritually. So most religious people, card-carrying followers of God, would stay away from lepers. Not Jesus. They cry, have mercy on us. You know what Jesus tells them? Go and show yourself to the priest. What? Go and show yourself to the priest. See, there was something in Leviticus where if someone ever was cleansed of leprosy, they would go to the priest. The priest would do a certain thing that was prescribed in Genesis. No Jew had ever been healed of leprosy. Naaman was a Syrian. There were others. No Jew had ever gone through that. No Jew had ever gone to a priest. Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. Now, why in the world would I go show myself to the priest? Nothing's happened. I've heard of this man who on instantly, blind eyes are open. Nothing's happened. Again, another overlooked verse says, as they went, they were healed. You all get that? As they went, they were healed. Now, use your imagination. They turn around. They start going to the temple. They're going to show themselves to the priest. Ten of them are walking. One guy looks down. The other guy's fingered and no leprosy. The other guy looks the other way. The guy's face is being cleansed right before his eyes. They keep walking. By the time they get a mile in, everybody's cleansed. The one guy comes back and falls on his face. And Jesus says, where are the other nine? Weren't ten healed? And then Jesus says this, go your way. Your faith has healed you. I don't know the mystery of the dynamics of faith, but I know this. Faith is released when you take a step. Guys, I, I tried everything in my imagination. I did word studies. I looked in thesauruses. I tried not to tell you that I was going to give you the secret of faith today. But this is the secret. The secret of releasing faith is taking the first step. Obeying. You've got to do it. The word Decision comes from incision. It means to cut off. It means to cut off every other possibility. That's why Abraham had to leave. 
He had to cut off every other possibility. He had to cut off everything he could naturally lean on. His father, his house, his riches. In other words, he had to take a step. He had to go, and then God would show up. And he had to see by the eyes of faith. And the amazing thing in Abraham's life is that he's, he's in his 70s, and it wouldn't be until 90 until he would see some of what God was doing. That's why when we get down to the later verses, in Hebrews 11, it said he dwelt by faith in the land of promise. So not only does it take a step to begin faith, it takes a step to dwell by faith when you don't even see God's activity yet in your life. Now, a little pop quiz. Who's the most famous first step taker in all the Bible? Somebody yelled it out in the first service. Peter, right? There's that scene in the Gospels that almost seems like it shouldn't be in the Bible. Because never was faith ever wielded just, you know, for fantasy, right? You read these things of the Gospel of Thomas where Jesus is a little kid and, and, and he's moving furniture around. That's all ridiculous, right? But we have this one scene with Peter that makes no sense where, you know, they're on the boat and they're fearful of the Sea of Galilee. And they see Jesus is far off and he's walking on the water. And Peter said, I want to do it. Of course he wants to do it, right? And Jesus, instead of rebuking him, said, Peter, you want to walk on water? Get out of the boat. And he gets out of the boat and he begins to walk on water. And then he takes his eyes off Jesus, and that's a whole other lesson. But I think God let him do it to show us how important a first step is. You see, when you take that first step and you see God move, the next time around it gets a little easier and a little easier after that. But don't be surprised if you take a step and nothing happens. Don't be surprised if things go backward for a season. Next week, we're going to have a group of people go up to the Bronx, about 35 of them. And we've been going for six years now. We support Household Beekman with Sarah Fraser-Miller. And I love Sarah's testimony. You've heard her often. But here's a girl who goes to NYU, has a job that she loves, and God's telling her to go to the South Bronx to the poorest neighborhood in America. What does she do? She rents an apartment and she sits on the stoop and she gives out flyers. And if you go next week, you'll see facilities and vans and 501c3 corporation and corporate grants. And you think, oh my gosh, this is wonderful. And yet she never saw that. She saw it by faith. Sitting, handing out cookies to people in poverty. Dwelling like Abraham by faith. And verse 10 says that as he waited, remember Tom Petty said waiting's the hardest part? He waited. Faith waits. And he was looking for the city whose foundations, whose builder was God. You know what Abraham realized? And this is why he could leave. He could leave because somehow... Faith, and by the way, faith isn't, you know, we're not checking our mind as doors, not a leap in the dark. Faith is evidence, it's substance, there's something to it. You know what, you know what Abraham finally believed? That everything he was experiencing in Babylon and Ur of the Chaldees was built on a faulty foundation. And they would later be overrun, and then the Persians would overrun them, and then the Greeks and the Romans, right? This whole world has faulty foundations. This whole world's built on the house of cards. And every once in a while we get a glimpse and we see pogroms and things around the world and we're kind of inoculated here in America, but we're not immune to it. The 
rug could get pulled out from any one of us. The things we believe in, people turn against us, systems collapse. Abraham finally realized there are no firm foundations in anything else I believe. And he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. And can I say this? Hebrews says they all died in faith. And every one of us will too. Unless the rapture comes, we will all die in faith. Because the city we're looking for is not on this planet. It really isn't. Are we called to make this place better? Absolutely. Are we called to help people have clean drinking water? Absolutely. Are we called to love those in need? Absolutely. But there is a city one day that we will live in where the rug will never be pulled out from under us. Where God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and there's no false hopes, and there's no false dreams. And somehow by faith, Abraham was able to grasp this place. Now, I already told you God's the great interrupter, right? You're living your life, things are grand, God comes along and says, nope, we're going to change direction. But not only is he the great interrupter, he's also the great complicator, okay? In other words, Abraham had to leave everything. So why couldn't he just come in this land and populate it? Why couldn't he just take this land? It would have been so easy, right? Well, God complicates it and says, no, Abraham, here's the deal. We're going to start the whole program with an heir. And the heir, by the way, is going to come from your body. Now, he's 90 and Sarah's 90, okay? The Bible says she's as good as dead. I didn't say that, okay? How in the world do you have a baby at 90 years old? And why does God care for these things? I mean, it seems so absurd. It seems, it seems hard. Hebrew says he staggered at the promise of God. I mean, well, what? And the reason God does this is because in the end, he wants us to know, without a doubt it was him, so that when we look back or we go through it the next time, we can put a stake in the ground and say, yes, God did this. Uh, count how many times you see in the rest of the Bible, uh, especially the Psalms, where they look back and talk about the horse and the rider being cast in the sea. Countless times they bring up the Red Sea and how God parted and drowned Pharaoh's army. Why? So future generations would know the power of God, that it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. So when we look back, we can understand. And so we read here about Sarah, that by faith, Sarah also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child. They called him Isaac, which means laughter. Are you kidding? 90 years old, we're in the birthing room? This is ridiculous. Because she judged him faithful who promised. Therefore, from one man, him as good as dead, were born as many of the stars of the sky, innumerable as the sand on the seashore. Uh, don't be surprised in your life when God calls you to something. And, he, and here's what we all do. And Abraham did it, so could I. We finagle, right? God calls us, we take a step, then we help God along whether it's money or power or whatever. And you know what God does? Little by little, every one of those things dies. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if God lets everything you have staked your claim on die around you so you finally just say, God, I surrender. I surrender, God. If this is going to happen, it's going to be you. These people had nowhere to go. They had nowhere to go back. They had nowhere to go forward. The vision was staggering, and God comes along and calls those things that aren't as though they were. Let me tell you something.
deepest part of Abraham's faith was yesterday. The writer of Hebrews records it this way in verse 15. By faith, Abraham, when he was, uh-oh, tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Now, to understand what's going on here and to see why this is the deepest part of Abraham's faith, it's to go back into Genesis 22. Don't turn there now. Read it on your own. I'll tell you how it works. But it's almost the same phraseology. Genesis 22.1 says, Now it came to pass... After these things, get this, God tested Abraham, not the devil. God tested Abraham. I have a sneaky suspicion if he tested Abraham, he's going to test you and me. Anybody else kind of wonder if that's true? Yeah, take a look. Now, does anybody like tests? No, 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 we don't like tests, right? Because most people that ever gave us a test were trying to prove what we didn't know, right? We're scared of tests. Now, I heard two things about tests in 24 years of hearing preaching, and I I like them. I really do. One person said all of God's tests are pass-fail. I like that. The other one was, and millennials won't get this, remember we used to watch TV, and right before your favorite program, this gray screen would come on, and there was this squealing, piercing signal, and it would say, this is a test. It's only a test of the emergency broadcasting, Right? However, if this was an actual emergency, you would have been told to do. In other words, if we were going to get nuked by the Russians, they tell us where to run, fall out shelters. Remember that? But it never happened. It was only a test. And some of you are thinking, why in the world would God ever test me? Like, is God a God who puts a $20 bill on the boardwalk, and when you reach down to get it, he yanks it under the boardwalk? (laughs) See, you think, that's what we think of God. Why would he test us? Two reasons. He wants to reveal to you where you are. He wants to show you where you are, and then he wants to grow you for greater use. Remember I said that first step is critical? The more first steps you take, you start to go around the block of God and say, ha, I've been, I've been here before. God wants me to take a step. And your muscles, by doing curls, you're, you're getting stronger because you're exercising faith. Abraham test is grand. Here's the test. Again, God says, take your son, now now listen to these words, they're going to sound familiar to something we know about. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. Notice, we will come back to you. Faith was operating. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Commentators believe Isaac was in his 30s. And he 
took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Then Isaac asked Abraham in verse 7 the, the question of the ages. He said, my father. He said, look, here, my son. He said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Where is the lamb who was offered? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide. And it doesn't say for himself. The original Hebrew grammar says God will provide himself a burnt offering. Two of them went together. Notice the imagery of a father's love for an only son at a particular place with wood placed on his back the third day. I mean, all the imagery is what we need to picture. And Abraham saw all this in Genesis 22. Now, here's where it gets spectacular. There's a law of Bible interpretation called the law of first reference. That means the first time you see a word in the Bible, it's the most important. Genesis 22, this is the first word Use of the word love, which fascinates me because in Genesis 1, we have the creation of the world. Love's never used. Genesis 2, we have a wedding. Love's never used. Genesis 3, we have a birth. Love's never mentioned. Chapter 10 of Genesis is a funeral procession. Love's never mentioned. And the reason it's never mentioned is because the Bible, the Holy Spirit's telling us that this is love. If, if you really want to know what love is, the essence of it, this is it. Father's love for his only son that it would offer him in a place for you and me. This is why 1 John says, hereby we know love. Not by our bank account or what God did yesterday where he spared my grandma. That's not how you know love. Here's how we know love. He first loved us and gave himself. Gave himself as a sacrifice. That's love. If you ever want to know if God loves you, don't look at your bank account. Look at the cross. Because that's where the greatest exchange in the world ever happened. That's the place where God freely gave you everything you would ever need. And forever and ever, it's not just about that. The remarkable thing here is that Abraham could see this afar. Where is the lamb? It's the question of the ages. Where is the lamb? Where is the sacrifice that would end our sin. You know when that was answered? At Jesus' baptism. He walks into the waters of John's baptism and John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Take away sin. That's where the sacrifice is. And by the way, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's the first time love is used in the New Testament where God looks down from heaven and said, This is my son that I love. Dear him. And then the first time in John, as John 3.16, now God not only loves his son, but God loves the entire world. For he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him would never perish, but have eternal life. And somehow Abraham looked at this plan way before him, believed by faith. He tells the men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go, and we will return. And the writer of Hebrews says he believed that God would even raise Isaac from the dead. What is being communicated to us today? Here's what's being communicated. You and I on a journey of faith are called to believe certain things about God that are true, that God is love, that, that God understands where we are, he, he, he's loving all the time, and we're called to believe that in spite of what we see. I was in the cafe with two women who lost their husbands via cancer. How do, you, how do you guys know each other? Both of us lost a husband very young. And 
yet they're called by faith to believe that a God who took their husbands is still a God of love who has a perfect plan for their lives. And we all have to believe by faith that God is who he said he was despite the things that we see. And faith is the evidence of this unseen God. And somehow Isaac saw it to the point where something he couldn't believe, this promise of an heir, that how could ever God ever take it away? How could God take Isaac away? He's the heir. Not only that, God's not a God of human sacrifice. That's what they did in the Ur of the Chaldees where Abraham came from. And the only thing Abraham could do was chalk it up and say, the lad and I will return because by faith God would never require it. And yet he takes faith's step and he goes into that promised land. And in some mystical way, he sees Isaac even from the dead. It's one of the most remarkable things in all of the Bible. Jim Symbol has said the deepest believers are the ones who were bent over because they are leaning so heavily into the re- so heavily into the relationship with God, knowing that they can do nothing without utter dependence on Christ. The greatest Christian is not the one who has achieved the most, but rather the one who has received the most. God's grace, love, and mercy often flow the most through the people who walk in total greater picture than total dependence on God than Abraham, dwelling in a tent. Is that the same one as Abraham? Imagine if Bill Gates decided to just live in a tent for the rest of his life and dwelling in tents, waiting, waiting on the promise. The thing we always have to imagine is how dark would the world be if Abraham said to God, He would have lived a life in the era of the Chaldees and he never heard from God. How many people do we know by faith who stepped out, had they not, would have been half-hearted Christians till they would? How many millions believed because of Abraham? One decision. One decision to make. You're one decision in your life away from great things. to go up, you have to give up. There's always something to give up. There's always something to leave. See, we love this idea that things are static, that things aren't changing. They're changing all around us. The only thing that's constant is change. And God's saying, take a step. Take a step because you'll meet me in that step and there will be a preferred picture of the future that you wouldn't believe if I told you this today. 